Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Jesus is better. We are today going to be looking at the end of chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And if you would please be turning there, you can find this on page 1003 in the blue pew Bibles in front of you. Or if you would like a larger print Bible, it's on page 1189. I want to remind you, we do have notebooks in the back if you'd like to take notes. We would love for you to take opportunity or advantage of that. Also, just be aware of the things that we have going on. We started a kids' Sunday school class today. Uh, our bulletin has information on all the different things that are going on. We're entering into the fall, and so we are entering into a new season. Now that you've had a chance to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for what it teaches us about Jesus and what it instructs and exhorts us to do. We pray that you would help us to comprehend this word in our heads, to hide the truths of the gospel that this word shows us in our hearts, giving us comfort in times of difficulty, and to work out this word in our hands, applying it to our lives, coming before your throne of grace, and being diligent in prayer. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been given advice about something by someone who hasn't done whatever it is that they're giving advice about? So let me give you an example. About a year into our marriage, a single college student who had never been married was telling me how to be a good husband. It was very hard to hear. Or, or maybe, maybe it's not like that. Maybe you've suffered through something, and, and someone comes up to you and they tell you, oh yeah, I understand what you're going through. But you know that there's no way that they actually could until they have gone through that. When people do things like this, give advice when they have no experience, or tell us they know what we're going through when we know they don't, we tend to not pay any attention to them. We tend to ignore them or not believe them or not listen to them. And we do it because they actually don't understand what we're going through. Now that single college student might have read a hundred books on how to be a good husband. But as anybody will tell you that has been a husband, reading a book is very different than doing it. And so it's hard to hear advice. It's hard to hear sympathy when 
Someone doesn't understand what we're going through. But when we meet someone who has shared experiences like us, or someone who has gone through the pain and the suffering that we have gone through, we are willing to listen to them because they know what it's like. And they might be able to help or bring some kind of comfort. And this is especially true in hard situations. When we find someone who has suffered as we are suffering, we want to listen. And so when we think about our spiritual lives, our faith lives, we want a Savior who can relate to what we're going through, who can relate to what we struggle with, who can relate to how we are suffering. And we have that in Jesus. Today, as we look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we're going to see that Christ can relate to us, and we're going to see what that means for us as we relate to him. So let's start by looking at verse 14, because the text kind of divides itself up. You've got verse 14, and then you've got verse 15 and 16 together. So let's start with verse 14. Context is, aha, I caught you off guard. Let it rest for a few weeks, but it's important that we remember that when we approach the Word, we understand who the author is, who they're writing to, and especially as we're in the text, we understand what the context of what is around it is. It's so easy for us to go to the Word and read one sentence and skip out on what the author is talking about and miss the bigger picture. And so here we are at the end of chapter 4, and what we just finished up last week was this large section, this large section of warning. Hebrews is filled with different warning sections. And the warning that was given in chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13, was not to follow in the footsteps of the wilderness generation, because the wilderness generation fell prey to unbelief. They stopped believing in who God was, and therefore they didn't get to enter into God's promised rest. As we looked at that, we saw that that didn't just mean the promised rest of the Holy Land. That also means that eternal promised rest because they stopped believing in God. And so now, coming out of that section, we see that the author is going to transition into a bigger section about the priesthood of Christ. This section is going to go on for many chapters, all the way into chapter 10. We're going to talk about how Jesus is the great high priest. We're going to talk about what that means to us and how that is important in who he is. And that's significant because we remember that the author is writing to a, a congregation or to a people who is struggling, who are suffering, who are being persecuted, who are being tempted to turn away, who are tired and exhausted and, and don't want to stick with the faith that they've had because it's just easier not to. And the author is telling them, is encouraging them, is exhorting them not to abandon their faith. And the author continues that theme here after this warning with introducing the theme that Jesus is better because he is the great high priest. These verses and the sections and chapters that follow are some of the most encouraging verses in all of this letter. 
Because they tell us who Jesus is and what that means to us. Look back at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's dive into this section. So we start with this concept of great high priest priest. Now this is important because remember the author is writing to Jewish believers and so the idea of high priest sends them right back to the concept of Aaron. See we're going to find as we continue through Hebrews that Jesus stood for us in judgment and is now our advocate. That is an incredible truth. That is an incredible encouragement but he begins by pointing his audience back to Aaron. And reminding them of what God has done all throughout the church's history. The author begins with this language that would connect them back to Leviticus chapter 16. Aaron, the high priest, and how on the day of atonement, he would make atonement for the sins of the people. Aaron is instructed in Leviticus 16 to approach the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. On that one day a year, the Day of Atonement, he was to approach the Holy of Holies as the high priest to deal with the sins of the people. So there were chief priests and there was the high priest. So it was Aaron to begin with as the people set up at the foot of Mount Sinai how this was going to work. And on the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, when Aaron went into the Holy of Holies, the only time all year that that would happen, he represented all the people. It's interesting because uh, I, I just, I can't tell you how significant Leviticus is to us understanding our salvation. I love Leviticus, and that was instilled in me by one of my college professors, who, by the way, came out with an 898-page commentary on Leviticus recently that's about this big and, you know, this thick, and I'm so excited to dive into it. I just got it in the mail recently. Leviticus is significant because it paves the way for us and our understanding of who Jesus is. And what was happening is as the people come out of Egypt... In Genesis, we see God make the promises to Abraham, and then uh, God's people, the descendants of Abraham, get sent into Egypt, and then they become enslaved in Egypt, and after 400 years in Egypt, they come out. And this is where God starts to treat them as his nation. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, he gives them the law. He tells them how to act. He tells them what they're supposed to be doing as his people. And he tells them how to deal with their sin. Because God is their king. The tabernacle, the tent that sat in the middle of where they were, was the palace of the king. And the Holy of Holies was the throne room. Now, God is perfect. God is holy. So sin can't be near him. This is why they needed those sacrifices was to take care of that sin. And one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, there were sacrifices made for any of the sins that weren't taken care of normally or any of the sins that were hidden or any of the sins that they didn't realize that they had committed. It's interesting because when you read through Leviticus, sin is described kind of like dust, keeping in mind they're in the desert. If you get something nice out, like a, a tent or, or you know, one of those pop-up things, and you're in a very dusty area and you just leave it out for any amount of time, when you start to put it away, that dust is going to be all over the place. 
And that's what sin was like. It was, it was this covering that was, was making things dirty. And so it had to be dealt with. And Leviticus 16 gave the people this reset every year in the Day of Atonement. God was with them. God couldn't be with sin. And so every year, all of the sins of the people were taken care of on the Day of Atonement. This is important because Aaron, as the high priest, was the one who had to do this. And now, using that language, drawing their attention back to Aaron as the high priest, the author of Hebrews connects Aaron and Jesus. This comparison is showing that Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is the greater version of the high priest. Aaron was but a shadow of the great high priest. Aaron was the high priest, but he was but a shadow of the great high priest. The shadow language is really important because all through the Old Testament, we have these examples, these shadows of the things to come that were pointing forward to what Jesus would do, and Jesus was the thing that those represented. And so Aaron in the Day of Atonement was a shadow of what, what Jesus would do on the cross. The sheeps and goats that were sacrificed didn't remove the sin. We see that later in Hebrews chapter 10. And they've known that from the beginning. It was looking forward to. It was a, 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 an example of how our sin would be taken care of. But it didn't actually take care of the sin until Jesus died. Instead of being sheeps and goats that just represented the cleansing of sin and still had to be killed for that sin, Jesus was the cleansing of that sin on the cross. As our great high priest, he is the one that removed sin. Not just pointed forward to someone that would, but he is the one that removed sin. You see, on the cross, Jesus accomplished a finished redemption. Not an ongoing, not a partial, not the beginning of redemption. Jesus accomplished the finished redemption. It's done. Nothing else has to be done. That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to do anything. We can't do anything because everything we do is unholy. But Jesus accomplished a finished redemption. He was the great high priest who dealt with our sins in a way nothing else could have or did. And now that that uh, uh, redemption is accomplished, he is sitting at God's right hand, interceding, praying for us. If it was possible to have had a less costly sacrifice to deal with our sins that would have worked, we would have had that. But it's not. A perfect man had to die. And so this concept of a great high priest draws their attention back to Aaron, draws their attention back to the sacrifices, draws their attention back to the sin that has to be dealt with. This is why it's so beautiful to understand the context, because if you hear a great high priest, you're like, great, it's another title for Jesus. You know, on his business card, just another one, high priest. But when you understand the context, 
That points back to Aaron. That points back to the sacrificial system. That points back to the Day of Atonement. That points back to the need for our sins to be dealt with. And so now that we hear a great high priest, we see that not only is he a high priest, but he is the one who dealt with our sins. So now the author of Hebrews has pointed their minds to Aaron and and continuing in that vein, he says, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now again, this is language that would remind them of what Aaron did. So on the Day of Atonement, Aaron would go into the temple courts, then Aaron had sacrifices to make, and then he would enter into the tabernacle and out of sight of the people. And then he would enter into the Holy of Holies where nobody could see him. But in that disappearing, if you will, as he passed through the temple and into the Holy of Holies, he was dealing with their sin even though they couldn't see him. And now Jesus, in the same way, having dealt with our sin, is sitting at God's right hand. Passed through the heaven refers to both Aaron as he goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and Jesus right now as he sits at God's right hand. Christ has ascended out of our view and into the presence of God. The tabernacle and the temple were shadows of God. Jesus. This shadow language, this concept of shadow is very important. If you turn the page to chapter 8, verse 5, we see it described. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on my mountain. The tabernacle was a shadow. And then we fast forward into chapter 9, and we look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The Day of Atonement, the sacrifices were shadows of what, God, of what Christ would do for us, and he has done that. Because Jesus is our great high priest who passed through the heavens, we are secure in our position. And so what does the author say? We've got this great high priest. He passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So his first exhortation to us is to hold fast our confession. And we've already seen this in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Chapter 3, verse 14, as he enters into this warning text. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here the author is connecting what we've just talked about in the warning section and all that we've said about how Jesus is better to what is coming about how Jesus is our high priest. And so verse 14 is looking back at what we've just talked about and is connecting it forward to how we're going to dive into and examine Jesus as our high priest in the next few chapters. 
our confession, as we see that language used in verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession is the truth of Jesus received and acknowledged in the world. When we were going through the book of Mark, we talked about this over and over again, how Christ was talking about what the gospel is, the truth of Jesus, and we receive it. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we read this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We confess the truth of Jesus that we believe inside our heart. Romans 6 says the same thing. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The things that we produce, the things that we earn, our wages, through our sin is death. But God gives us the free gift of eternal life through him in Jesus by believing in Christ and what he has done on the cross, we have now the faith that God has given us and we can now confess it not only to one another, but to the world. So the author of Hebrews here is saying, if we have confessed Jesus and have begun to wander off the path or have been so tempted that we're thinking about turning back the author of hebrews says hold fast stand firm stay on course let us hold fast our confession and so having introduced the idea of a great high priest in verse 14 and having wrapped up the end of the, um, the previous section, particularly the warning, we now begin to enter into this new section of text in verses 15 and 16 where we're going to look ahead at how Jesus is our great high priest. And we start in verse 15 by learning that Jesus can sympathize with us. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can sympathize with us because he has been tempted, he has been persecuted, he has been hated also. The things that you are going through, Jesus understands. Jesus isn't that guy giving you advice who has no idea what he's talking about but wants to be the expert. Jesus isn't that person telling you to calm down or to not worry about it as you suffer through pain and sorrow with no concept of what that's like. Jesus understands. He has been persecuted. He has been hated. He has felt physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. He has been tempted, and he knows what it's like. The author is reminding us of Jesus' humanity. Going back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for, for because he himself has suffered when tempted... 
He is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 2 gave us this preview of what we're now starting to dive into, that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus had and has humanity. Jesus has gone through the things that we are going through. And in fact, if you think about it, Jesus' temptations were far more intense than anything we go through. Now, I know some of us are probably thinking, yeah, right. You don't know what I'm doing. None of us have been in the wilderness without food for 40 days, being directly tempted by the devil face to face. Jesus went through that. Jesus went through far more than some, what some of us can even imagine. How many of us would have been able to stand in front of Pilate and not pled our own innocence, but instead let God's plan work itself out? Who of us has been directly confronted by Satan? Brothers and sisters, we cannot write off Jesus' struggles because that's going to be our temptation. We're going to be tempted to say, well, you know, Jesus wasn't this, or wasn't this, or wasn't this, which I am, so he really doesn't understand. He does. And he sympathizes in a far greater way than we could ever imagine because he's been through the things that we are going through. And notice, at the very end of verse 15, not only can he sympathize with us, not only has he been tempted as we are, but he did something we have not done and will not do. He did not fall prey to sin. And can I just say, praise the Lord? Because if Jesus fell prey to sin, then he's no better than Aaron. You see, in Leviticus 16, when Aaron goes for the Day of Atonement, the first thing Aaron has to do, after putting on all his special outfit, he has to clean himself even before he does that, he has to make sacrifices for himself and his family first, because he's a sinner representing sinners and he goes in and then makes atonement makes sacrifices for the people jesus doesn't have to do that jesus has no sins that have to be forgiven jesus has no sins that need to be dealt with jesus did not sin even though he was tempted even harsher than we are tempted and again praise the lord this not sinning is necessary for our redemption because if Jesus had sin, he would be no better than Aaron and we wouldn't have hope in his death. We would still be waiting for the one to come along who would be the perfect Messiah. But because Jesus did not sin, he did not need to redeem himself. And so now he is the great high priest Aaron had to sacrifice for himself. Jesus does not need to because Jesus is perfect. And this perfection is why he was the perfect sacrifice. Think about this. In all the times when you've been tempted. Now, sometimes we fall prey to that temptation. But other times, if we're in the word and fighting against that temptation, we'll push it off. Jesus had a faith that never wavered never questioned, never weakened, and never struggled with having to fall prey to temptation. He was perfect. His faith didn't waver or weaken. 
And so he can relate to us, is what verse 15 says. And then verse 16, having explained who Jesus says is, says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This concept of the throne of grace, which we're supposed to draw near to, uh, goes back to chapter 1, verse 3, and it's the throne on which Jesus sits. Commentators point out that it is the throne of grace because Jesus sits on it, and Jesus is grace personified. Now, this also likely Remember, we're connected to Aaron because of this priestly language. We're connected to the Day of Atonement. This throne of grace also connects to the mercy seat. In the Holy of Holies, the place right above uh, where the Ark of the Covenant sat was called the mercy seat because when Aaron went in there, he would dip his fingers and, and throw the blood on the mercy seat, praying for mercy for God's people. That was supposed to be where God sat, obviously, uh, that was a metaphorical explanation of how he sat because Aaron didn't walk in and see some giant. But that was God's throne. That was God's throne room. The mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was God's throne room, the shadow of the throne of grace on which Jesus now sits. And so because of this, what does the author say? He says that we are to draw near to this throne of grace. Again, draw near, priestly language, connecting back to Leviticus 16. Aaron was told to draw near or to approach the Lord on the day of atonement. And so we are to draw near to God. But now, we don't have to have somebody else do it for us. We don't have to wait for the high priest to draw near to God to, hear, to have our prayers heard. Now we can approach the throne of grace. And we're supposed to do this in confidence, is what verse 16 says. Why do we have confidence as we approach the throne of grace? Aaron likely, hopefully, was approaching with trepidation praying that he wouldn't be struck down. You remember as, as you study the history of the high priests as they moved from wandering in the desert with the tabernacle to the temple in Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement when the lots were drawn, the person who went in to make the sacrifice on behalf of the people had a rope tied around his waist. That was in case he walked into the Lord's holy presence, still sinful, and died immediately. They could pull him out without having to go in. So they, there, was, there was every right to be trepidatious as you approach the holy throne because our sin clings to us until it is dealt with. But we have confidence in approaching, not fear, not timidity, because Jesus did not fail as our priestly sacrifice. We have confidence and we can approach the Lord because we know that our sins have been dealt with. Oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, what good news! This is glorious confidence because of Jesus. Not confidence because of us, but confidence because of Jesus. Even though Hebrews is filled with warnings not to turn away, and sometimes when we read those things, we kind of get lost and despondent because we think about all the things that we have done that we shouldn't have done, and we think about how we're sinful, which is good, because by the way, if we weren't sinful, the gospel would have no meaning. 
The author doesn't want us to get bogged down in those warnings, doesn't want us to get bogged down in our sin, wants us to reflect on our sin, but also wants us to remember Jesus. This is glorious news. This is why these are some of the most encouraging verses in all of Hebrews. Because we have the glorious, full assurance of faith because of Jesus. Uh, Now, as I was studying this, I also spent some time this week in John 17. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer. Right before, in the book of John, right before he's betrayed and arrested, and we know what happens after that, we have this recorded prayer of Jesus's, and it's so beautiful. In this prayer, he, he prays that we as God's people would be united in the word, that we would be working together, striving for the glory of God. He prays for the people, not just that he has taught and that he has instilled, but the people that are to come. That's us. He prays that the gospel would go out. In John 17, verses 1 through 10, it says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. God gave his elect, those whom he had chosen, before the beginning of time to Jesus. Jesus lived for us. Jesus taught those with whom he was around. Jesus died for us. He rose again from the grave for us and is seated at God's right hand right now praying for us. Yes, we need to be aware of and repent of our sin, but also think about the glory that comes in having a great high priest who not only was perfect enough to make the sacrifice that had to be made for us, but also can relate to us. Christ, as he said in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, has us. Christ is praying for us. Brothers and sisters, our comfort stems solely 
from the work of Christ. That is the only thing that has earned, deserved, gotten anything that we have. The work of Jesus, not us. It's not Jesus plus the things that we do that get us into heaven. We're not advancing because of the things that we do. We're not picked because of the things that we do or will do. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that gives us comfort because of his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so, as the author here says in verse 16, we are called to draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace. This is praying to the Lord. When we draw near to the throne of grace, as we pray, as we follow the author's admonition, as we trust in the work of our great high priest, as we dive into the word he leaves behind for us, we'll grow in Christ's likeness. We'll grow in our assurance because of who Christ is. We'll grow in our hatred of sin. We'll grow in our love of God's word and God's law. We are called to grow closer to Christ. We come to the throne of grace boldly, is what verse 16 says, only because of Jesus and his completed work. Not because of what we've done. We don't come arrogantly. We come boldly, knowing that our sin has been paid for. And so as we come, we receive mercy and grace from God. What a glorious promise. As we approach the Lord through our prayers, as we approach the throne of grace through our prayers, we receive mercy and find grace in our times of need. Remember the audience. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. They're wondering if they should turn away. But here, the author says, by approaching the throne of grace, you will find mercy and grace in your time of need. Martin Luther, when he was going through the different uh, struggles that he went through and the different challenges that he went through, uh, one of his friends saw him going through these things and wrote a letter to Philip Melanchthon, uh, another person, and he commented in that letter on how struck he was by how Luther approached the Lord in prayer. Luther, in the midst of these struggles, in the midst of these people challenging his faith, would spend no less than three hours in prayer a day. And this gentleman who had observed Luther writing to Melanchthon said he was struck by the way that Luther approached the Lord. He approached him boldly, claiming the promises that were in Scripture, yet submitting to the will of the Lord. This is what we are to do. Let us approach with confidence the throne of grace, making our requests known to God. When we are tired, when we are tempted, when we are exhausted, when we want to give up, we must, we can, we are called to run to Jesus. Our great high priest is there for us. Our great high priest hears our prayers. Our great high priest sitting on the mercy throne gives us mercy and grace in our times of need. Speaking again about music, uh, the Gettys have a new Ur song that came out, and it's a, it has these beautiful lyrics, and it was written 
to friends of theirs that are struggling in their faith, that are running away from their faith and trying to figure out what's going on. And here are just some of the lines in this song. When this life of trials tests my faith, I set my hope on Jesus. When the questions come and doubts remain, I set my hope on Jesus. Though I falter in this war with sin, I set my hope on Jesus. When I fail the fight and sink within, I set my hope on Jesus. Though the shame would drown me in its sea and I dread the waves of justice, I cast my life on Calvary, I set my hope on Jesus. Though this heart of mine is prone to stray, give me grace enough to finish. Till I worship on that final day, I set my hope on Jesus. Following Jesus means running to him when we're struggling, when we're tired, when we're tempted. And we can do this because we have confidence to approach the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done. He was tempted as we are tempted. He suffered as we suffered, and even more so. He did not sin. And that is why he was the perfect sacrifice. That is why he was the great high priest. He can truly relate to us and our struggles. This whole series is called Jesus is Better. Jesus is better. Jesus can relate to us in a way that Aaron couldn't. He can relate to us as the better high priest. He was for us the better sacrifice for sins. And he is for us a better hope and comfort in our times of need. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you have shown us through your word, that Jesus is our great high priest. Father, we pray that as we spend the next many weeks unpacking more of what it means that he was our high priest, that we would not only grow deeper in our knowledge of what Jesus is as our high priests, but we would grow deeper in our love and our appreciation. We would grow deeper in our confidence to approach him, and we would grow deeper in our comfort, in our mercy, in our grace as we run to him. Father, we thank you that while we can't do anything, Jesus has done what needed to be done. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.